who specialized in, get this, medieval intellectual history. You talk about something that the modern world of academia would think is a complete oxymoron and non-starter. He specialized in medieval intellectual history. And this professor could really turn a phrase. And I think his best known phrase is something where he said, tradition is the living faith of the dead, but traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. And he actually spoke a lot in defense of tradition. And I think that's probably how he's best known. But I was actually looking for something he said in a commencement speech at Wittenberg University in the 60s, where he said this, once upon a time, and a very good time it was, being an intellectual meant being a Christian. And he goes on in this particular address to just discuss the intellectual history of Christianity. Christianity is unique in its exceedingly pro-intellect stance. Um, there's not anything like it, as far as I'm aware, where, for instance, the core sacrament, the core sacrament of the Christian faith is the Lord's table, and the, there's an intellectual effort being engaged in as you engage in the sacrament. It's, it's encoded in the word that Jesus used, remember. What is he saying there? He's like, use your brain to go back in the files and pull up this particular point of data. So even in our core sacrament, there's an intellectual exercise commended. And then, of course, you have all of these phrases in the scripture like consider and ponder. And then there is this classic moment in Isaiah where God says, come, let us reason together, right? And then you have all the Socratic questioning in the book of Job, for instance, where God says to Job stuff like, do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on earth? Can you lift your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? And You've got the Socratic questioning of Paul, not only as he addresses um, the Areopagus in Acts 17, but even as he talks to the Corinthians, there's this classic three-question, you know, punch combo that he throws at the Corinthians. And he says, who sees anything different in you? Why do you act? What do you have that you did not receive? And why do you act as if you did not receive it? And just this, 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 this approach is unusually... It, it takes up an unusual amount of CPU tax on the brain. I mean, you could spend easily, easily a whole lifetime being an academic of simply one of Jesus's parables. Like you could, you could do that if you wanted to. And then, of course, Proverbs is full of commendations to be wise, to be thoughtful. And a proverb itself, I think, is kind of a, an algorithm almost. It's like, wisdom tech. It's like, here's this two lines, and you use it to sort out reality and figure out things. So all of that kind of obvious pro-intellectualism is standing on one side, and then we get to our text today, which is Proverbs 3, 5 through 10. And I want you to, I want you to listen to this and, think if, and see if you think there's a contradiction here. Because over and over again, the Bible's like, think, 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 figure it out, reason, consider, ponder. And now we have Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. 
It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all of your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. So at first blush, this feels contradictory to all of this other data of think, 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 think. And now we're being told, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord and lean not on your own understanding. And so at first blush, like a lot of things, it appears incompatible with itself. But on second blush, is there a second blush? On second blush, we'll say there is. You realize that, no, 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 hold on a second. The pinnacle of intellect mature, intellectual maturity is what? What is the sign that you have shifted out of the phrase, phase of being a sophomore and into the phase of being something less than a wise moron? It's intellectual humility. There's this shift that comes along with intellectual maturity that is essentially intellectual humility. And it's really hard to have this as you're growing initially in your powers of your intellect. It's very difficult to have this sense of, well, I mean, it is impossible to know what you don't know, right? But something happens at some point upon intellectual, I wouldn't say arrival, but at least maturation, where you begin to have some fuzzy idea that there's a lot you don't know and also a lot you can't know. And this is actually sort of the meaning of this proverb. It's, it's emphasizing our limitations as human beings to really perceive the world as it is. I mean, it's really kind of crazy to think about all the data that's spinning out there in the world that we have no access to and no capacity to see. You know, there's a light spectrum, and we are able to see a part of that light spectrum. Um, there's, there's a sound spectrum, and I think we're even, if I remember correctly, we're able to hear a very, very small part of that spectrum. And I've never heard anyone say this, but there's a smell spectrum, right? Like, like and I'm really thankful that, <laughs> that my capacities are right here. Like, I would not want to be able to smell all the smells. The smells that I smell are good enough for me. So there's just, just in terms of sensory perception, there's a lot of limitations. There's a lot more going on out there than we can perceive. And then you have all sorts of other kinds of, of instances of this. I mean, did you want x-ray vision at some point when you were a teenager or you know, as a kid? I thought that would be pretty cool. Now I'm like, I do not want x-ray vision. <laughs> People are a mess. No, thank you. <laughs> But, you know, we're talking about all the things that kind of are. Like, here's another example of something that is, that you have no capacity to. What the person next to you is thinking. Right? So there's just all of this information. And it's just like, it's just all around us. And, and I haven't even begun to talk about the future. Which is, you know, one minute from now, let's say. We, none of us know that. And so on and so forth. So our ability to actually see is extremely limited. But there was this romantic comedy that came out when I think I was in my 20s, and the guy could suddenly read the minds of all women everywhere. And I think at the end of the movie, he falls in love with a woman, but I thought the right ending should be like, his brain just pops with an aneurysm. <laughs> it's like the male brain can't carry the load <laughs> of the female brain. Like, it's just boom, he's just dead. 
this, if you think about even like the superhero genre and sort of what goes on in fiction, it's a whole fictional category of someone at least temporarily having some area of perception listed, lifted. Does that make sense? Like suddenly they can read the minds of women or they can see through walls or they can see the future. Uh, Magneto, you know, or uh, the other dude, the wheelchair, he can see, <laughs> Professor X, he, he can see all the mutants and so on and so forth and read people's minds and so on and so forth. And so this whole idea that we have a limited ability to see, perceive, know, it's a well understood, we all experience it, and there's a reason why people are interested in maybe not having those limitations, because a lot of the stuff we can't see can hurt us, right? It's not the ostrich doesn't have this one right. I don't know if ostriches really do that, but if they do, that they would be wrong in thinking, if I can't see you know, the hyena, the hyena can't see me. It's like, that's not how this works. So there's a reason that we've dabbled with and thought about, could we possibly not be so limited in our understanding? It's because a lot of the stuff we don't see and can't perceive can actually hurt us. And this is actually uh, the whole risk associated with loving people. Is that's a whole other person. And you don't get to go in there, right, or here. And you don't really know what's going on. Um, some of you might know my wife is just, she's just a character. She's just the most unique person. <laughs> and my kids will totally understand this story. But I, maybe a year ago, I had a dream, a total nightmare, where you wake up and your heart's just racing. And my whole nightmare was that my wife didn't actually like me. She was just faking it, you know. She just decided, like, it was just convenient. It's like to not rock the boat. And she was just, like, pretending to like me, you know. And so, like, I, and, and so I, like, realized in my dream that I had been fooled. You know, there was all this information out there that I didn't know, and it was hurting me. And so I woke up. This is the part my kids will think is funny. I woke up, and, like, when she woke up, I told her I had this dream that you faked, faked that you didn't, you know, you liked me, but you really didn't like me and so on. It was terrible. My heart was racing. And this is what she said. She's like, that's weird. And then just, like, went, and then just went on and did something. <laughs> Thank you, honey. I feel so much better. <laughs> um, this is going to happen to all of us at some point, and it's happening to some of us. You wake up, and something's wrong with your body. And you can't, you don't know what it is. And what's going on there is, is your ability to sense the problem is intact, but now in figuring out what the problem is, you've hit the edge of your capacities. And you're like, okay, now what? And what I've seen over the years in walking as a pastor with people is, is this is actually maybe one way to think about anxiety. In, in one respect, anxiety is like a raw nerve that's exposed to all the stuff you don't know. It's like your perceptions exposed, your li the limitations of your perceptions exposed to the hard, endless possibilities out there. I rarely have met an anxious person who was also dumb. I think often it's people who are doing the math and realizing there is so much out here that could mess me up and I can't see it coming. So all of that to put you in, I think, the proper frame of reference for Proverbs 3.5. 
So that's all our situation. Our perceptions are limited, and there's a ton of stuff out there that can actually hurt us that we can't see coming and won't be able to see coming. And Proverbs 3.5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. One of the most interesting things to think about for me related to all this is, is what's all of that noise for? Why are there 8 billion people with their own individual thoughts and many thoughts at that? And what's with all the sand? And who, who's listening to ants when they make noise? And how does the core of the earth smell? And, you know, what's with all the atoms? <laughs> I mean, honestly, there's a teleological, it's a fancy word, but there's a, there's a slight kind of argument to say, like, there's all this information. Is there one person who is perfectly informed? Like, who is all this information for? Who's listening to the thoughts of 8 billion people simultaneously and to the ants and counting the atoms and the sand? And it drives us right back to this verse. There is someone who is aware and perfectly aware of all things and of all the things that God uh, experiences, he will never experience surprise. God will never be like, huh, perfect knowledge, all-knowing. And he's the one we're called to trust in. God has perfect perception. Everything is visible to him. Everything that's invisible to us is visible to him. And so this invitation to intellectual humility involves a recognition of who you are. You're just, a, you're just a very limited person. I'm just a very limited person. My capacities to perceive and understand the world around me are extraordinarily limited. And I will be, the world has set up this very ingenious way where I must fundamentally trust my life to people who tell me things. That's just how the world's set up. I can't possibly do all the brain work myself, right? I have to trust. What is trust? Trust is an opportunity to respond to the outer edge of your perceptions. So it's like when you, when you love someone and, and you have to trust when they say, no, I'm not fake. I haven't been faking it for 27 years. I really do love you. That's what she should have said. So, huh? Uh, you know, it's an, it, what I'm doing in that moment is I'm at the very edge of what I can see. I'm at the very edge of what I can understand. And now I'm just going to decide, am I going to trust this thing over on the other side of my limitations? That's what Proverbs 3.5 is saying. There is someone on the outer edge of all of your limitations who has no limitations. And he sees all things. So you should trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not in your own understanding, and in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. Now look at verse 7. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Now, given the general theme of this particular section, I do not think that this verse is saying, don't be wise in your own eyes, and oh, and also... Turn away from all evil. I don't think this is saying there's a bunch of evil in the world. You should turn away from it. That's something you should do, something I should do, but I don't think that's what this verse is saying. I think what this verse is saying is being wise in your own eyes is evil. 
That's what I think this verse is saying. Being wise in your own eyes is evil. And you have this whole tie-in to rest. And let me explain that. So earlier, we saw this part of the passage that said, don't lean on your own understanding. The word for lean in Hebrew there is to find comfort in, to rest in. So now let's work back through this a couple different ways, because this could mean a couple of different things. One of them could be something like, one of the things it could mean is something like this. Don't get comfortable living based solely on your wits or your understanding or so on. Don't get comfortable that you're, that you're seeing things right. Don't rest on this idea that you've got it figured out. It's like a, just a generalized call for intellectual humility. That's possible, but here's the other possibility that I lean toward a little bit more. I think what it's saying there is, is given what we see in the next section, you aren't comfortable. You're just pretending you are, or you've just gotten comfortable with being uncomfortable. This idea that you can find sufficient comfort leaning on your own understandings, I don't, I don't think so. You know, we had a terrible bed for years. And uh, I mean, you know, we were, you know, when you're first married, you know, this is, you should just go ahead and buy a nice bed. I mean, if you possibly can. But we did the whole thing where like, this was like, like you know, and a Victorian woman probably died on this bed, you know. Uh, it was so incredibly uncomfortable. And I'm a side sleeper. And so it's just, you know, constant, like, you know, arguing with my hip bones and, you know, so on and so forth. And then we, we bought a memory foam mattress Praise the Lord. <laughs> and suddenly, um, I, I'd become so accustomed to being uncomfortable, I didn't know how uncomfortable I was. And I would say that if you're living in a world where you are essentially intellectually alone and you're not able to trust in anyone, you, don't, you maybe don't realize how uncomfortable you actually are. And the reason why I think that's the idea here. It's because of the promise on the tail end of verse 7. So be, don't seek, you, don't lean on your own understanding. It's, it's not very comfortable. And the reason why I think that's the answer is, is that in verse, verse 7 or verse 8, it says, you know, don't be wise in your own eyes. Um, resist, you know, turn away from evil. But then it says, then, then it will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. I think the idea is that if you finally are able, or to the extent that you are able, to actually trust God with this problem of your limited perceptions, you will find a level of rest you did not know you were missing. And it will feel like healing and refreshment to your bones. What are we, what are we meaning when we say bones? Well, bones were really the, the essence, essence of a a person when someone died they would keep the bones but I mean have you ever been like in a really cold place and felt the cold in your bones it's this deep down sense and the idea here is that once you begin to trust in God for the stuff you can't figure out and there's a surprising amount of that stuff you will start to feel a rest that you did not know you were missing I mean, the truth is, is that living life with your own perception as ultimate is extremely unsettling. And I'm experiencing a new wave of that. It's kind of unsettling and kind of fun. Um, over the past few years, I've noticed that my vision, my long-term vision is not as amazing as it once was. 
And so I just can't see as far away anymore as I used to. And so kind of, it's one of the interesting things about this is, so it's a limited perception, right? And one of the interesting things going on there is like, everything's a little bit more suspenseful. Like, I don't know who that is over there. I have to wait a little longer. So it's just kind of, my life has more intrigue in it than it did, you know, two years ago. But it's also kind of uh, uh, unsettling, especially around Halloween time. This is the first Halloween where I think my eyes have been like this. And I sometimes wonder, like, is that really a person hanging from that tree, or is that a mannequin? Um, you know, I was driving past someone who had a Halloween mask um, tied to the headrest of, a, of their passenger seat, and I thought, like, maybe I should warn the person there was a monster. It's just very, it's just, it's just, my eyes are not used to dealing with Halloween <laughs> and with this new level of vision. And I actually think that, again, back to anxiety, against, uh, back to the raw nerve idea, I actually think it's like, it is actually quite scary to live life with your own limited perceptions as the ultimate. And I think when you repent from the evil of being wise in your own eyes, you find a new level of rest. Now, I do want to also just cover verses... 8 through 9 as well, uh, 9 through 10, sorry. I want you to notice in the passage itself that there are these four phrases that all have this feeling like they are almost saying the same thing, but not quite. You have trust the Lord, acknowledge him, fear the Lord, and honor the Lord. And you have these, this is what will often happen in poetic scripture there's this sense almost of what I would call like a, a, like a mosaic approach to Revelation where you get words that are almost the same, but they're not the same, and they're kind of layered on top, and they begin to expose a clearer truth. And all of these words, trust, acknowledge, fear, honor, what you would not want to do, this would be kind of foolish, is to wake up tomorrow and say, okay, I got four things I need to do. I got to trust God. I got to acknowledge God, I got to fear God, I got to honor God. These are just describing one thing. There's just many features of this one thing. It's, it's just describing a right posture toward the Lord. And the word that seems to be the most common, uh, well, there are two words that seem to be most common in Proverbs. One I'll save for later is the word fear. We'll deal with that one later. But we need to deal with this word honor because it is everywhere in the Old Testament. It's a pervasive Hebrew word. And it's also pretty important in the book of Proverbs. The word honor comes from the Hebrew word kabod. And you may know what that word means or have heard that word before. Another Halloween reference, Ichabod Crane. Uh, that's just describing someone who is extraordinarily skinny, like a crane, who, has had, who is not attractive. He has had all of his glory removed. He's Ichabod, Ich, no, no God, no kabod, no glory. The word is translated in the English Bible, sometimes as glory, sometimes as honor. And what the word really means is weight. Uh, that's, the, that's the root of this. The root understanding of this is weight. And it feels, I think, very foreign to our Western brains to associate glory and weight. But we know, for instance, that when Paul was writing 2 Corinthians 4 and he said, eternal weight of glory he was thinking like these people were thinking. It's just not super familiar for us to think of honoring someone as associated with weightiness 
heaviness. So I want to try to explain that to you. I think as we walk through Proverbs, it'll be good for you to have some handles on that. I think the first most obvious way to explain this association between weight and honor is just to talk about gravitation and mass, right? Gravitational pull and mass. Like this big thing is pulling things toward it. That's getting close to the idea of this ancient notion of honor and weight. But there's another way I'd talk about it, and it would go back to when we bought our kids a trampoline when they were little. And uh, I'm not going to tell that story. You're good. Uh, uh, <laughs> I felt the death stares. <laughs> um, no, you know, we, we, we really got into double bounces. You know, the double bounces are physics, are amazing, you know, physics experiences. And so uh, I would be the, the bounce force, of course, and I'd be on the trampoline with the kids, and then I would be launching them just super up in the air with these, you know, double bounces. And it was great fun. But pretty much like every fifth bounce, it's just such a chaotic environment. My knees would buckle and I would fall down. And so now you just have this size of man laying in the middle of the trampoline. Now, what was once a relatively flat surface now has a slope. <laughs> and everything flows toward the slope. So I knew it was only maybe three or four more jumps away from everyone landing on me once I was down, right? Because now my mass is waiting and causing a slope. That is, I think, a relatively good way of explaining why honor and weight go together. And that would simply be to say that whatever is the weightiest thing in a moment, all things flow toward it. Um, if, you, if you had $20 worth of quarters and you put them on a mattress, even my amazing memory foam mattress, and then you sat on that mattress, you would have a bunch of quarters on your tuchus in a few seconds. It's this idea of slope. What does it mean to honor something? It means that that thing holds a degree of substantive weight or mass that tends to make everything else about it. So when we talk about honoring, uh, trusting the Lord with all your heart, lean on understanding, in all your ways acknowledge him, we're almost talking about God as the mass in, say, the solar system. And everything is pulling in that direction. I had a funny thought today that one day we're going to have a telescope that's going to allow us to really, really, really see a black hole. And it's just going to be a fat dad laying on a trampoline. And just like, like hi, <laughs> come jump with me. <laughs> time, space, continuum, fabric was trampoline-like the whole time. But if you want to know what honor is, I would say that it's this, it's this a way to, another way to think about it is, is as you go through your life, there are certain thoughts that you are drawn to and certain that you're not. There are certain things you're afraid of. There are certain, why are you afraid of certain things and not others and so on and so forth? All of who you are is flowing toward what is the most important thing to you. And if you just watch yourself think, you can do that. You know, you can catch yourself thinking like while you're driving or something. And if you watch it, your thoughts are actually moving in a direction. There's, a, there's something they're headed toward. And the idea of honoring God is, is that he is setting the slope. And all things are flowing toward him. And the truth is, is that many of us, most of the time, the greatest, heaviest, weightiest thing 
in our hearts at any given moment is usually ourselves. And this launches back on the front part of the proverb. It's just another way of talking about you being the center of the universe and not God, or you trusting in your own understanding and not trusting in God. It's, it's all kind of the same thing. And so verses 9 and 10, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of your produce, and your barns and your vats will be overflowing. That is not some kind of proverbial fragment where he's gone into another section. He is actually just explaining what is almost the universal test in the scriptures for whether or not you're actually trusting God. <laughs> that is simply the way it is, my friends. One of the weird things about trusting in your own understanding is, is you start to become really free at assigning motives to other people. And so one of the weird things about this whole issue with money, for instance, is pastors hate talking about it. Well, the ones that should talk about it are the ones that hate talking about it. Let's put it that way. And one of the reasons they hate talking about it is because you've got a bunch of people who are trusting in their own perceptions, and they hear a pastor bring up money, and they're like, well, I mean, that's convenient for you. It's like, what you're doing right now is why you need to hear this. You're trusting in your own understanding. You're, you're writing the story with limited data. The truth is, is if you were to just walk through the scriptures slowly but surely, you will conclude that all the way from Cain and Abel to Jesus and Judas, the question of greed is the associated, associated symptom of someone who is not trusting in God, but in leaning on their own understanding. It's, it's, it's actually really, really well established. There may be something that's more established than that, but I will tell you, as a measuring stick, as a litmus test, it is one of the most universal biblical tests. How do you know if you are, in fact, trusting in the Lord and not leaning on your understanding? I will tell you that it is possible for you to be self-deceived. It's possible for you to be wise in your own eyes and say, well, I, of course I trust in the Lord. Of course I don't lean out of my understanding. And I would just say, follow the money and see where it flows. And that is an entirely biblical sentiment that's used to measure the faith of people from the beginning of the book all the way to the end. How do you know you're actually getting beyond your perceptions and your understanding and trusting God? One of the fundamental ways of knowing that in the scriptures is to follow the money. And you can kind of tell just based on that, that this was the litmus test for the rich young ruler. And the truth is, is we read the prodigal son story from the back end, and it's beautiful from that end. But the front end, you've got a greedy young man who wants his slice of the cash. So that even the pretext for the prodigal son is Greed. Judas was a thief. The Pharisees were clearly motivated by money. And then we have countless examples of the heroes who sometimes we're not even sure how heroic we should think of them as. One of the key moments in David's life is where he is resting comfortably in his house and he says, God, I want to build you a house. And God's like, no. <laughs> but... <laughs> You see, you see the fundamental nature of David in that story. Completely unprompted, on his own, of his own volition, he initiates sacrificial 
giving. So you can treat your giving as a really good test for whether or not you are actually trusting in the Lord. So the other beautiful thing about this is that you can actually reverse engineer the whole situation, meaning by giving to the Lord, you can teach your heart to trust in him. This is expressly what Jesus said in Matthew 6 when he said, Do not lay up treasures for yourselves on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal, for your treasure, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So if you want to change your heart to one that trusts God, then you can actually run this whole sequence in reverse and wind up in the same place. And that's often the case with things that God commands. It's like you don't always have to have the heart to do it. Sometimes you just have to have the will to do it. And by doing it, you'll get the heart. That's one of the basics in Scripture. So in short, trusting in the Lord seems like absolutely, absolutely the, well, first not only the right thing, but the way to find peace. But that's such a murky idea. What does it even mean to trust in the Lord? I mean, that's a very big concept. What does it mean concretely? And so we have in verses 9 and 10, the first instance so far in the book of Proverbs with a very particular action called call to action. And that very particular call to action is honor the Lord with your wealth. Everything else has been very general, like seek wisdom and so on, and suddenly now we have this very particular thing. Honor the Lord with your wealth. So let's think about this at one other level. Uh, when the queen passed away recently, uh, you know, the queen wasn't much on my radar, you know, didn't, didn't, wasn't big on the queen news. I didn't know a lot about the queen. Uh, seemed like a cool lady. Maybe not so great of a parent. I don't know. But uh, I, was, I was interested in all of the protocols and traditions. And I think as Americans, it's very easy for us to look at that to go back to the quote at the beginning, it's very easy to look at all that as sort of dead tradition. It's like, and it may well be, but it's like, was it always dead? And the answer is no. So what was going on with all of the curtsying and, and the, uh, you know, all of the protocol associated with meeting, say, the queen? And what you'll find is, is that when a, when a society decides that something is worthy of honor, they build a system to make sure that it's honored. They build a system to make sure that it's honored, meaning, like, let's figure out a way to ensure that people not only do honor, but know what honor looks like and so on and so forth. And here's what I found about honoring the Lord. Uh, G.K. Chesterton uh, once said, I think we have that quote, yeah. I always, if I ever have a G.K. Chesterton quote, I always put a picture of him because he's just fun to look at. But he writes as his exploration of Christianity. As, and the more I considered Christianity, the more I found that while it had, it had established a rule and order, the chief aim of that order was to give room for good things to run wild. 
And so it's like, I want to live a life that honors God. You're going to need some rules. You're just going to need some rules. Honoring God is too important to renegotiate the fundamentals on a regular basis. You need a system. And the difference between, say, Christianity and Chesterton's foolish dabbling in Catholicism, the real thing going on in Reformed Christianity is, is you figure out your rules. And by the way, they won't save you. But the need for order, the need for rules, the need for a system is there. You will not honor God. He will not be the heaviest thing in your life without a system. And so there are pieces of the system that just seem to be kind of almost universal, but they're not salvific or prescriptive in any particular. Well, some of them might be prescriptive. But, you know, it's like surround yourself with friends who will tell you when you're being wise in your own eyes. Well, that's a system. That's something you actually have to proactively do. You have to create an environment where that's happening. Read God's word regularly as a check on your own perceptions and thoughts. There's just these things that you have to say. It's very important to me that I honor God. I can see that my life is really set up that way. And I do also see this constant problem of me becoming weightier than I should be and God becoming lighter than he should be. So I want to honor God. How do I do that? You need to do what Chesterton said. You need to set up a system, rules and order, so that the good things can run wild. And that looks like you being intentional about building your life around honor. For instance, I have one of the rules of many, one of the interior rules that I have is I don't get out of bed until I pray. That is, uh, my, my, the quality of my prayers while I'm laying down are extremely bad. You know where I pray the best? Hot tub. But, uh, but uh, I have a rule. I don't get out of bed until I pray. What's that rule about? It's a, it's a part of my system. It's, it may not be the best part for you, but it's a part of my system, this whole set of interior rules that I operate on so that I make sure that in, in ways that possible that I am honoring God as much as possible. Here's another one. If there's, a, uh, if, if there's someone in need on the side of the road, if they're female... I stop. If they're male, I don't stop. Uh, that sounds super creepy now that I say it out loud. <laughs> no, I, it, it's, it's a code that's just simply, I want to make sure that those who have the least likelihood of being able to do this thing, super chauvinistic of me, I want to make sure that they're okay. And there are all these things that you just begin to adopt over time. I have regular phone calls with old guys who are crotchety and tell me what to do. Um, you set up the system. One of the other systems is giving. You set up the system so that it is a constant teacher to your soul about who and what is most important. So having said all that, let's go back really quick with three minutes and launch into communion with the same passage. Verse 7, be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. That's, that's uh, one way for me to just tell you that the gospel is the only way by which any man can find healing and saving and eternal joy. And the essential call of the gospel 
page after page in the Bible is something like, stop trying to do this on your own. Jesus died for you. And so this verse, don't be wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord, turn away from evil. We've already said the evil is being wise in your own eyes, and the evil of all those evils is being wise in your own eyes as to sort of trying to figure the whole salvation thing out on your own. Nope. It's pretty clear. There is no name under heaven or earth by which men may be saved, but the name of Jesus Christ. And this, if you trust in this, you will be saved. And today, as we go before this table, we're thinking about the body and blood of Jesus as he offered it in the opposite of healing and refreshment. The flesh of Jesus, the, the body of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, sacrificed, spilled out, broken, desecrated, so that he who knew no sin became sin, so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. And then, of course, there's this obvious tie-in to the issue of wealth in verses 9 and 10, because the New Testament tells us that he who was rich became poor, so that for our sake, so that we might become rich with him. And so the table set before here as, as an opportunity for you to do what we said at the very beginning, to remember that Jesus Christ has offered himself as the perfect sacrifice to make you right with God and fit for heaven. So if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, whether you're a member of this church or some other church, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, and Jesus is your hope for eternity, would you come and partake of this table with us today?